Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I'm just a girl. I'm just a girl in the world. That's all that you'll let me be! I mean, it's ironic you've said that on International Men's Day. <laughs> or quite apt, as as you, as you may well see. <laughs> Are you going to introduce yourself or not bother? No, I'm not bothering this time. All right, so hello everyone, welcome to Album Clash. Uh, it is the second part in our New York Clash, so I took us through the Strokes debut album, Is This It, last week. This week, the artist formerly known as Kev will be taking us through... Turn on the Bright Lights by Interpol. Great stuff. So, just to remind you, obviously, New York being the City Clash, two albums that really helped revive guitar music, two albums that were incredibly influential in what followed. And as I mentioned last week, the uh, Strokes album was recorded before 9-11. This one was recorded in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. And sort of tonally, that is very much reflected in both albums. So that was in my thinking as why I chose this as a clash. Before we get on to that, though, uh, it's your pick for Video Killed the Radio Star, Kev. Yes, so we return to another former clashy. Um, so air from their subsequent album to the one that we covered... Um, so the track I've chosen is Electronic Performers, which is taken from their um, 2001 album, 10,000 Hertz Legend. Yeah, I really like 10,000 Hertz Legend. I think it's a really good album. It's a lot darker than Moon Safari. And this is one of the darkest tracks on there. I had never seen the video before, I have to say. So like, if we just talk about the song, it sounds like Electro Floyd. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, I don't really know what to say to that. Yeah, I suppose it does. Because well, the guitar bit, is, it seems to me very Dave Gilmore-y. So I, both the song and the video, to me, have got massive, massive attack vibes. <laughs> I've just, you know. Well, and obviously, so the video itself starts with essentially sound waves akin to, and I put this akin to the Joy Division Pulsar from Unknown Pleasures. Yep. And it's sort of in tempo with the with the music, and then it, you sort of gradually move out through DNA into the body, and it's really cleverly done. You've got that oscilloscope pulsing in time with mm-hmm. the music all the way through. It just yeah. so at one time it's the neurons firing in the brain, and at yeah. the time it's the blood cells going through the veins. It is really, really cleverly done. It's a really interesting take on that sort of. Uh, oscilloscope video mm-hmm. and as I said it because of the way it ends with the baby in the womb huge massive attack yeah. vibes obviously there a really really good video I'd never seen it before I'm familiar with the album really like it really like the song and um, well aside from the fact that the uh, you know the massive attack stuff the video also resembles the opening credit sequences of about 60% of movies from the early 2000s <laughs> I mean, it is very much of it of its era. Um, yes. The animation was done by Machine Mole uh, VFX mm. Studio, and they, they do an excellent job on it. Yeah, it's it, it's a it's a really good video. It's not it's not one of their more well known ones, and 
yeah, I certainly strongly advise you to check it out because it's a really good song. Plus, the lyric lyric content does allow you to do some uh, ridiculous French accents, uh, saying "We are electronic performers." Listen very carefully. I will say this only once. <laughs> you can very much pretend you're in a low hello. Yeah. I'm sure I, I heard them refer to the German bummers. <laughs> <laughs> They're pissing overhead. Uh, anyone who did not grow up in England, well, in the UK in the 1980s, is going, what the fuck are these two talking about? Yeah. They're being really quite inappropriate. <laughs> Again, <laughs> well, that that's growing up in 80s Britain, is that it was largely inappropriate. And xenophobic. Much like 2020s Britain. <laughs> <laughs> Good video. We will, as ever, share the links on our socials. And I have been thinking about creating a YouTube playlist of our Video Killed the Radio Star picks. So watch this space. It's not it's not around yet, but um, yeah, I might do. It will probably get done quicker than the um, than the Spotify playlist. Yeah, and you'll be relieved you can't watch music videos on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> you thank fuck for that, because, like, you know, two things that I have to deal with. <laughs> Christ. Uh, right, okay, that is enough of Video Killed the Radio Star. Good choice, Kev. Never seen that before. Liked it a lot. Okay, um, so should I crack into um, starting to talk about Turn on the Bright Lights? Please do. Okay, so as is uh, customary, a few factuals. So it was recorded in November 2001 at the Tarquin Studio in Bridgeport, Connecticut, not recorded at the Julian or the... Um... I was going to say, <laughs> to save you from failing to come up with another middle-class name, is that or is that not the most Connecticut name for a recording studio? The Tarquin Studio. <laughs> to the Hamptons! <laughs> Taste. I'm not sure if we've got any listeners in Connecticut. No, we, we're not highbrow enough. We we haven't covered Deflader Mouse. <laughs> nice. So yeah, it was released the next year, August 20th, 2002 on Matador Records and was, as has been said previously, it was the debut album of Interpol. So a few background things to the, and sort of the recording of the album. Most of the album had been written pre 9-11, certainly lyrically at least. Yeah. But the events had a huge influence over the meaning and the sound of the album. So Carlos Dengler talks about that he stood on top of a building and watched the Twin Towers come down. Like, this is a New York band, like, 9-11 definitely impacted upon them. And, you know, fortunately for the band, it kind of worked out for them. So Carlos Dengler, who was the base, who's the bassist in the band, saying, we were holding the cards to a certain message that was about to become relevant. It's insane. It's like the universe is taking care of us, even in the form of a horrific event. What they'd pre-written became so much more relevant after the events of 9-11. Absolutely. So there's a there's a couple more bits to the, that interview I'd like to read, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. So Sam Fogarino, the drummer, he said, for a few short weeks in New York, everybody was your best friend. Everybody had your back. Everybody held the door open for each other. And then you realise life has to move on. And lo and behold, everybody got back to it. You can't hold this city down. And then Carlos Dengler says, We were still going to put out this record, and we did. And everything started to be put together with this extra element, like shit can happen. I don't know if we were very aware of that before 9-11. The songs were written before 9-11, but the unintentional meaning they take on isn't any less of a meaning. 
And as I said uh, when we were going through the um, reason I picked this clash, whether it's intentional or not, you can definitely hear that this album, it has a sense of grieving all the way through it, mm-hmm. but a sense of catharsis at the same time. And as I said, that's in complete contrast to Is This It, which was so much more upbeat in its sound. And that was, I'd say, I found that really interesting. And that was one of the big factors with me choosing this as a clash. No, it's it's a really important point to make. So the recording process started uh, the band's relationship with Peter Cattis, who would go on to produce, you know, several of their albums and Paul Banks' solo output as well. And he was, you know, he was really important to the recording process. He very much was. There's a little bit I'd, I'd like to go back a bit about about how they came to be signed with Matador Records, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. So, basically, they'd recorded a demo, and, well, again, something that would became an, e, an EP. Um, they pitched it to Matador, and Matador had, uh, had rejected them. So, Sam Fogarino in Pitchfork, said, with Matador, we just emailed President Gerard Kosloy originally, and he wrote back saying, yes, send me the recording. And then he wrote back saying, it's cool, but I don't think we can put this out right now. We kept in touch with him, and a year later, we sent him some self-recorded demos and the Peel session. I'll come back to that in a moment. He liked it. He passed it to his partner, Chris Lombardi, and he really liked it too, so they contacted us. We had a nice conversation, and it was born from there. So that was how they came to be signed with with Matador. The EP that I mentioned, the demos, uh, was released in 2000. It was called F-U-K-D, Fucked ID. That was released through independent label Chemical Underground. They went on a tour of the UK in a very similar story to what we're going through with the Strokes. Whilst on that tour, they played a session on John Peel's show on Radio 1. And that, in a similar way to the NME single of the week thing, the Peel session is what started to get Interpol a lot of traction. And it was that session and the EP that they used to finally get a deal with Matador to record the album. Yeah, and then they they moved into the recording process from that sort of initial success, which enabled them to get a proper deal. But it... They weren't given a huge budget, I'll, I'll put it that way. No. The recording process was somewhat difficult. <laughs> they had a $900 budget, a limited stock of tape, and it was quite a difficult recording atmosphere. So the, the studio essentially was Cattis' house. <laughs> and the bands were drinking fairly heavily, and there was some, well, let's say, artistic differences <laughs> between the various members of the band. So... Uh, Fogarino, the drummer, was quoted saying, Carlos wanted all of his keyboard parts to be turned up really loud, and I would cringe over the overt AC synth patch that he'd be using. I'd turn around to Daniel and go, what the fuck is this? This is awful. <laughs> and then Daniel would just roll his eyes, and I would end up leaving the room while shouting something. <laughs> but this this kind of inherent kind of tension between the disparate elements kind of led to the sound and style it developed. So Fogarino again... If Carlos and I were books, he'd be a Nietzsche book and I'd be a Hubert Selby book. Totally different mindsets, but musically, it all fell into the right place. That's nice. But again, as we said with the strokes, it speaks to the fact that these are not four bums from Queens. These are guys who've come from a well-off affluent background who've been, who've been well-educated. 
yeah, you know, the the making references to Friedrich Nietzsche, you know, so we're not we're not talking, as you say, um this is not the Ramones. No. Uh, or the New York dolls talking. This these are literate people from wealthy backgrounds. Yeah, indeed. But what um, Peter Cattis was very clear about is that despite the internal tensions in the band, despite what was going on, they turned up to the sessions with a clearer idea of who and what they were and what they wanted Mm -hmm. to achieve. Uh, So Peter Cattis was quoted saying, there was something about that band that right off the bat, they had their shit together. They had that cool name, fair point, because it is a great name. They practice and practice. It all fell together the way a band's first record is supposed to, but normally it does not. Nice. Yeah, I like that. Do you have anything more you wish to say about the recording process or anything like that? I have one more thing to say, not about the recording process, but it is about their sort of relationship and rivalry, whatever you want to call it, with the Strokes, if I may. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in a 2014 interview with The Guardian, Paul Banks said, I wish I was more bro with those guys, the Strokes, obviously. But it wasn't like, hey, my buddies, the Strokes are doing really great. It was more like, wait a minute, who the fuck is making music this good? And they're blowing up. The Strokes were apparently hanging out in exactly the same place as I was, but I didn't know any of them until everybody in England was like, up their ass. I had never heard of them doing a gig. If you think a lot of internet companies rising up at the same time, they don't think of themselves as in it together. They think, oh my God, have you heard these guys doing super cool stuff and blowing up? We've got to work on our craft. And that is how they saw the relationship. Mm -hmm with the strokes they didn't have a relationship they didn't know the strokes they you know it was very much like hang on these guys have come from what we've done and this is what they're putting out christ like we said about the killers last week we've got to up our game here yeah it's i mean just because they're from the same city doesn't mean that they you know new york is a fairly big city with with a long musical heritage so it's quite easy for you to to develop separately without there being a scene as such you're absolutely right, although both bands were based in the East Village and played gigs at the Lunar Lounge at around the same time. So they were more geographically concentrated than you might think. However, that still doesn't mean that they're necessarily hanging out mm-hmm. in the same bars, drinking together and all that stuff. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah it's, it's we're not talking uh, the Camden Mixer in the 90s. No, <laughs> indeed. Okay, um, so if that's everything everything covered, then shall we move on to um, how you first came across the album? Yeah, okay. Not immediately for me. It's probably a year or two after it came out, 2003, 2004. I'd heard of Interpol at the time, but I'd never delved into their music, so to speak. It was when a lot of their songs started being used on TV soundtracks. So Six Feet Under is a show I was bang into at the time. They use a lot of Interpol songs on quite a number of their shows. But but the the one that was the real tipping point, and like this is gonna sound so weird when I say it, it was Friends. Okay. <laughs> so the last episode of season nine of Friends, which is the one where Joey and Rachel kiss, in that scene, Untitled by Interpol is playing. And I just don't remember watching that and going, Jesus, what the fuck is that music? It's brilliant. 
And this is pre-Shazam. So I was going on Google and it's like, what was the song playing? Found out this is what it was. Like, right, okay, I've now heard enough of Interpol stuff. I like it all. Now's the time to explore the album. So yeah, it was uh, a little bit after, but been a big fan ever since. How about you? Um, so it's a funny thing. So similar, similarly to you, I didn't get into them straight at the time. They kind of I missed them, and um, I didn't pick up the mm. the friends thing or anything like that. So I'm talking about sort of ten years later, and I'm Six Music has a well, still do have a series of programs called the First Time with uh, Matt Everett, and I'm pretty sure that he had Paul Banks on at some point, and. Obviously, they played some of their songs on it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I recognise that. I recognise that. Oh yeah, I, do, I know that. Oh, that's Interpol, right? Okay." And kind of, I'd heard them, but like they'd passed me by, and I'd never really mm-hmm. got into them. But like after after I heard that, then yeah, I was sort of much more like I wanted to to get in, wanted to listen to their back catalogue, and sort of got into them that way. But it was it was much later than the initial release. I, I never really picked them up at the time. Okay. Well, actually, that's perhaps not a surprise. When you look at the initial commercial response to the album, it wasn't an instant hit by any stretch. Yeah, it was It was very much a slow burn. Yeah, very much so. Okay. Should we do some artwork? So, yeah, before we get into get into it the there's the artwork so it's a it's a photograph by sean mccabe and it's essentially it's a photo of a london movie theater screen mm-hmm. so i've got a quote from um sean mccabe i'm gonna pass it a little bit because it's quite a there's quite a long quote um <laughs> it, we're not we're not talking chris gow length but it is fairly oh, it's fairly God. lengthy so it was a personal photo I'd taken about a year before I met them. I went to a movie theatre in London and I went to see a film. I was sitting in the front row of the theatre because the movie was all sold out and the whole theatre was red. I just took my camera out and took a photo of it. For some reason, they had these red lights on the screen waiting for the film to start. When I came home and developed it, I just loved the way it looked. So the, he's asked to provide an image for the album. And he said, mm-hmm. I wanted to get them a visual because we had a deadline. The clock was ticking. I took this photograph with me and immediately everyone liked it. There's something wonderful, abstract and powerful, like the idea of the shape floating in this void. By the time I got to the meeting, I was subconsciously trying to talk them into this, but I didn't have to. Uh, their music seemed very cinematic. So I thought of a lot of images as I listened to their album. I spent weeks listening to an unmastered copy of the album with a different track order. And the concept, which I, which how I sold it to him, was that their music made me think of all these images. This is a great idea for a cover because it's a blank movie screen. You can project whatever image you want onto it, and I think that's powerful. With the album being called Turn On The Bright Lights, and there's this image with these weird light things on top. If I tried to come too hard to come up with that idea, it wouldn't have worked. Brilliant. Yeah. So I think this image perfectly encompasses what lies within. Mm-hmm. It captures the mood. It, well, as he's just said, really, I can't better what he's said in that quote you've read. It captures the mood of the album brilliantly. And for that reason, as much as we said last week, Is This It is a more renowned and more famous album cover. And it's a good album cover. This is better for me for that reason. So I suppose that, and this this may sound quite harsh, and I'll I'll be interested to hear your comments um, about it is the the difference between the two, the two albums and the importance of this cover 
is that is this it is more television as opposed to this album which is much more cinematic in its scope it has a it has a wider angle lens yes i agree okay you could also say that is this it is intentionally more striking to get your attention it doesn't matter what lies within it's like we've got your attention now spend 15 quid on this take it home and listen to it because it's great whereas this is more considered. I know the image was taken mm-hmm. beforehand, but you've just said that Sean McCabe listened to the album and went through his personal stock of photos and chose this one as being representative, and it is representative. And so, you know, I'm not, as well as not being a professional musician or anything like that, neither am I a photographer. So without getting into any critical details of, of the art itself, the fact that it is more representative of the contents of the album means for me, I think it's the better cover. Yeah, I think, well, is it the better cover? I don't know. You're just a perv. <laughs> no, I, th- I think I think the reason that I'm sort of, the whole, the, like, so the whole point of a cover and what we've talked about when we've discussed cover art before is that it's a, it's a visually striking image. It's something that burns into your memory. And not that this is a poor image or anything like that. It's it's got quite a striking, a striking image to it, like the color, the balance of it. So it's a it's a good album cover, but but it's not a leather glove resting on a bottom. Well, the thing is, is you remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying, and I'm being more. Um, I suppose I'm trying to be more cerebral, and I, I don't, I'm not saying that to put you down or criticize you in any way. It's probably. Bit trying to get me a bit all wanky about things, but um, I've said a few times about album covers that don't really give a sense of what lies in store for mm-hmm. you. This does to yeah, me it, hugely. Yeah, I mean, I use obviously I, I talked about it, it having a cinematic kind of mm. feel to it. But which album cover am I going? Because I immediately say that's what it is. I'd probably say the Strokes because it is it is a more arresting image. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. We have not discussed fonts either this week or last week. <laughs> We've talked a lot about the artwork. Yeah. Should we talk about the the songs and that? Yeah, let's let's get into the album because that's that's essentially the the good stuff. That's why you're here. Yeah. No, they're not. They're here for the font chat, and we've not really done a huge amount. No, Kev, they're here for the eighties TV <laughs> chat. <laughs> oh, Go on. Okay, so. We open with the song Untitled. Mm. And Daniel Kessler said that the song itself was written specifically to open their live shows. Hence, it was called Untitled. And fuck me, you can tell that. Mm -hmm. I can imagine like a live gig and the guitar intro starting and it sort of building up with the bass and everything. And then the vocals coming in halfway through is that, yeah, it it feels like you're waiting for the lead singer to come on and start the album. It does does work perfectly. It does work perfectly. I'm going to use this word a lot. The soundscapes that are created on this song and throughout this album, but on you know on this song in particular, you've got again, as I said last week, a lot about the strokes. A really simple guitar riff, it's two notes, but with that reverb effect on it, it sounds absolutely colossal. Then, as you said, you've got a massive, massive drum beat and a huge bass line that comes in. You're thinking, Jesus Christ, this is four fellas in a studio. And it sounds like they're playing an empty Carnegie Hall. 
the scale of the sound is just mind-blowing to me. It's huge. Yes, it is huge. As I said when I was talking about how I discovered the album, this was the song when I saw it on Friends. Of all, I mean, what a weird choice to put this song on an episode of Friends. But, you know, okay, fine. This was the one that's like, okay, I need to listen to this album now because I've heard bits of two or three songs. This one is fucking great. Let's go. Just to use the adjectives we've used before, sinister, foreboding, menacing. It's just brilliant. What an opener. As you said, I'd love to be in a really sort of sweaty, tight Mm -hmm. arena waiting for them to come on. Red lights on. Exactly. The lights go red and then you just like the guitar starts. Like you get chills, Mm -hmm. you know. I love it. I absolutely adore it. Yeah, it's 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 a brilliant opening opening track. Okay, so then we move on to the second song on the album, Obstacle One. It was the second single from the album. So my my immediate immediate thing that I've got to say about it is that the band is, and particularly this album, there's references back to that sort of early eighties early 80s sound, you can see where the Joy Division comparisons come from, particularly on this, mm-hmm. with Paul Banks' vocal delivery and the sound as well. It, it's very reminiscent yes. of Ian Curtis. It definitely is. There is another band, not from the early 80s, that I think has influenced the sound of this song in particular, Placebo. Mm. That opening guitar riff sounds very placebo to me, mm. and that is a good thing. I'm a big fan of Placebo. Yeah, it's pure Brian Molko, that opening guitar, if I heard it anyway. Okay, fair, fair enough. Um, as a complete aside, have you seen Brian Molko recently? Yes. Have you have you seen his massive tash? Yes. I'm not sure how I feel about it. No, nor me. It's it, very Tom Selleck. <laughs> it is. Which I never expected from Brian Molko. No. You'd have thought he'd be much more sort of shit and wispy like Gary Neville. <laughs> No, I was thinking um, like a, a really thin, like kind of tash, like uh, John Waters. What, like Terry Thomas? No, I was going John Waters. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not trying to imagine Brian Mulco as a 1930s cad. <laughs> <laughs> and again, that's why that's staying in the show. <laughs> right, I'm going to move on from Terry Thomas. So. I mean, this song's got a fantastic layered sound, and we are going to talk mm-hmm. about about this consistently throughout discussing the album. The rhythm section here, Fun the drumming it. and the bass work from Dengler and Fogarino is yeah, wow. I mean, the bass in that in that middle eight, it it's it's a brilliant bass line. It is a brilliant bass line. There's a couple of things. There's a couple of parts on this album, and and, and that bit in the middle is one of them where I can see. Kings of Leon getting some inspiration from mm-hmm. from the sort of the, the break beats and the way the bass line comes in and out. It you know calls forward to, to a lot of what Kings of Leon were doing, certainly on a Heart Shake Heartbreak and um, whatever the third album was called, I forget. Just on the title of the song, if I may. Yeah, sure. So obviously there is a song later on the album called Obstacle Two. This one is Obstacle One. So explained by Paul Banks, who said Obstacle 1 and 2 actually came from Daniel. He was working on those. I came up with the names. They were just our working titles. But everyone was like, those are great titles. We wrote Obstacle 2 first and then Obstacle 1 second. 
I do think it was related to the fact that for some reason we'd had a drought in our writing. We just hadn't written anything good in a couple of months. And all of a sudden we were pumping out songs. So the obstacle being writer's block. Mm -hmm. Uh, The song itself was inspired apparently by the news story of a model who committed suicide by stabbing herself in the neck in 2001. So the lyrics say, but it's different now that I'm poor and aging. I'll never see this face again. You go stabbing yourself in the neck. It's in the way she posed. It's in the things she puts in my head. Nice and pleasant. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite dark. But, you know, it, it works with that sort of grandiose sound and, and delivery and everything like that. I mean, I had a completely flippant remark that I, <laughs> I had in my head which I'm I'm now going to bring up now, which has been completely undercut by the fact that... <laughs> Not like us to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so just like because of the way my, my brain works, that you were talking like obstacle two, obstacle one. And in my head, like I had like the voice of James Alexander Gordon, who used to um, do the uh, football... Obstacle two. Obstacle two. Obstacle one. Obstacle one. Hamilton Academicals, nil. Stenhouse Moor, nil. <laughs> Staying in, no explanation. Yeah. Check out James Alexander Gordon. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> okay, so we go from James Alexander Gordon to NYC. Yeah, we do. Uh, so the, the song itself was released as a double A side with "Say Hello to the Angels." And what, I mean, what you can describe this song—it's it's a love letter to New York. Yeah. <laughs> ding 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 ding. <laughs> a love letter to a city in all its repugnant, disgusting glory. Subway, she's a porno. Pavements, they're a mess. I know you've supported me for a long time. Somehow, I'm not impressed, but New York cares. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it is. And I mean, obviously, with the 9-11 context, it gives it a much more mournful, reflective sound. And not as, you know, the usual bombast when it comes to New York songs. So you think of, I mean, obviously New York, New York, but even something like Empire State of Mind, which is much more sort of celebratory. This is a reflective of that recovery of the city. It's getting back on its feet, that it's mm-hmm. it's dirty and it's, um, it's damaged, but you love it all the same. Or that PJ Harvey one where she's just talking about all the places where the tour guide <laughs> told her to go. She'd been on the bus. <laughs> she got, she got one of those tickets. Stayed on the <laughs> stayed on the tour bus. Gone all round, and then wrote a song about it. <laughs> so again, a simple guitar part, but the amount of reverb—it's just well. Actually, the way the reverb comes in, and 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 the way the the lead guitar part is played, it's almost like having a string section without actually having a string section. That's how big the sound that's created mm-hmm. is. It's a gorgeous, it's beautiful, gorgeous piece of music. I've never been to New York. The closest I've been to New York is I've been through Newark Airport and flown over New York, right? But despite that, this got me opening my heart to the city. Mm-hmm. That's how good this is. It's phenomenal, phenomenal piece of music. It's great, yeah. That if you were a New Yorker, that like surely this would be one of your one of your go to songs to yeah. because. You know, it's be- It's a beautiful tribute to the city. And again, given the context of when this song's released, mm-hmm. of course, it's it's going to absolutely play to that. Exactly. And and well, there's a there's a quote I want to read to that, if you don't mind. Again, so this is from the same Pitchfork article. This is Chris Lombardi, the, the co-president of Matador. 
He said, someone told me NYC was going to be the big theme song about 9-11. It never was, and I think that's unfortunate. Bit weird, but okay. But it did become the soundtrack to that particular time. The song is about New York falling apart. And the style in which it's played, as we said, the sound of the album is very much influenced by what happened, even if the lyrical content was written before 9-11. It comes back to what I said earlier about the sense of catharsis you get from this album. It's never more present than on this song. It is a song about grieving and recovering together. It is, as you said, a love letter to their hometown. I mean, what you can also say as well, it's like a time capsule. Brilliant, yeah. It's kind of the New York, the pre-gentrification New York. It's obviously Giuliani hasn't, his the stuff that he was doing hadn't had the impact that it, it latterly had. It, he hadn't got the Four Seasons landscapers in yet. <laughs> well, exactly. Trump hasn't bought up every piece of real estate. And it, it still feels like, so the lyrics are reminiscent of the remnants of the sort of 70s, 80s New York where... Mm. It was dangerous. You know, Times Square wasn't necessarily a place where you wanted to hang out um, and get your photo taken because you might get mugged. Mm. It it has that feel to it, and it's of a New York that's past, I I suppose. That is a really... Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that, but you're you're spot on. That's another part of that snapshot in time. Completely agree. Well observed. Uh, Okay, should we move on? Yeah, so we, um, we move on to PDA. It was their first single and uh, one of their oldest songs. So it's previously been on a number of the um, EPs that were released, including the Interpol one and a couple of other sort of demo things that that knocked around. And it nearly didn't make the album. Which you think is absolutely fucking mad, really. Well, it is. It is mad. So so this is Peter Cattis. We recorded PDA when we were coming up on finishing the record. And Paul was like, fuck that song. That's one of the first songs I ever wrote and I don't even want to bother with it. And I was like, whoa, listen, buddy, not to act like a bitch or anything, but that's your hit single. And it is their hit single. Yeah, it's it's a song that they're known for more than yeah. anything else. Yeah. Although, as you said, it was a lead single, but it didn't chart anywhere. So, you know, kind of fuck you, Peter Cattis. <laughs> it's, I mean, I suppose it's subsequently become much more, much more well-known. Yeah. We'll, we'll say that. Well, so surprisingly, it's not a song about personal digital assistants, which were all the rage in the early 2000s. It's not about a uh, Apple Newton. Eat up, Martha. <laughs> Customary Simpsons reference. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but it is, uh, it's about a relationship turned sour, about people being unfaithful. What I'd say, like the opening lyric is an absolutely brutal portrayal of being utterly powerless mm-hmm. uh, to the actions of your lover. Yours is the only version of my desertion that I could ever subscribe to. That's all that I can do. <sighs> Cut my heart open and bleed me dry. Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul, Paul Banks' lyrics, are they're incredibly dense and... Yeah. But... They are wonderful sort of tableaus that he cre- mm. that he creates. Yeah, they 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 are indeed. Um, like you said, I'm glad it ends up on the album. It deserves to be on this album. It's a it's a great song. What I like, four tracks in now. You've gone slow, fast, slow, fast. 
but nothing seems out of place. It's all got that sort of sinister, menacing, brooding sense that, that, that we talked about. Mm-hmm. It's all got that huge soundscape. It's got that anthemic sound. Thank you, yes. Right, this is a band I'm going to come back to a lot, okay? Editors. <laughs> and I'm going to be cl- I like Editors, particularly the first two albums. I think they're both really good, okay? But you listen to a song like Munich alongside this... There's a clear influence there. Clear influence. Without question. Something I'm definitely going to return back to, much like we will return back to editors. So fuck me. Like we talked about last week about ending songs. Just we're going to stop. That's it. These have a different approach, but fuck me, they can end a song. Oh, God, yeah. This song has a fucking great ending. It does. Absolutely. Yeah. Really, really good. There's one more thing I want to say. Okay. Who the hell has got 200 couches where you can sleep tight? Like, is he married to the fucking owner of DFS? No, because each one of those couches is on sale. (laughs) And also DFS sell beds as well, to be fair. Although, in fairness, shopping at DFS and generally shopping for sofas is something of a grim right. Because, like, much as I love a sofa... Like, it's fucking boring buying a sofa in it. Oh, this one's comfy. This one. Oh, this one's comfy. This is also comfy. Oh, it's what materials are available in? All of them. <laughs> what, is, what colours? All of them. Why am I here? <laughs> I'm here because I have to sit down to test it. Just pick the fucking sofa you want and let's go and never come back. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it doesn't have a quidenza. What? Um, What's do a- you know what? I've, I, I'm not even 100% sure of myself. I just heard the word before. I'm going to do this. That's what my fucking 12-year-old son does. <laughs> like an ottoman. <laughs> oh, fucking hell, yeah. Like, Well, they're more at the end of beds than sofas. Yeah. It's a chaise long that you get on a, you know, on a corner sofa, and I'm all for them. Anywhere I can stretch my legs out, I'm, I'm, I'm bang into that. So a credenza is apparently a dining room sideboard. So the context was absolutely nothing. So, you know, that may take a cut. Uh, I'll decide that. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, PDA is a really, really good song. Yeah. And I am glad that Peter Cattis told Paul Banks to do one. Well, as we said in our in our previous class, sometimes the producer or the record company is correct. Absolutely right. Okay, so then we move on to Say Hello to the Angels, which, um, as we mentioned before, was part of a double A side. So, the opening to this song. Do you know what I I noted down? Mm-hmm. Ballroom Blitz. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's the second time we've brought the sweet up on uh, album clash. I mean, can we just say aside? Ballroom Blitz, absolute banger. It's a fucking belter that song. Yes. Boring Blitz. Also, it is the most stroke sounding song on the record with the the drum rhythm, the guitar part that comes in after that opening bit. But in the verse, both with the sort of jangly guitar chords, but also the, the, the way that Paul Banks sings it, very Smith's. Hive mind. So, <laughs> so what I've written down in my notes is that it's a really weird song because it has like different movements to it. So you start yeah. off with with ballroom blitz, then you go into the Smiths, and then there's like quite a punky sound that they kind of 
develop into it and then it ends in like a really huge way but like i, I really like it as well it's it, it's a fucking odd song but it works i mean i'm certainly not saying it's as it's as good as um as good vibrations but it has that kind of different element of different songs kind of knitted together it does i have a theory about this and that is related to the subject of the song so it's a song about sexual obsession and gratification mm-hmm. I want your silent parts, the parts that birds love. I know there's such a place. That's the opening line of the song. Later on, something's coming over me. I see you in the doorway. I can't control the part of me that swells up when you move into my airspace. It's pretty hard to mistake the subject matter there, you know. I mean, clearly that's about being stuck in a decompression chamber. (laughs) Maybe. My theory... Bear with me here, because I'm being very wanky. My theory is that the structure of the song is built around the experience of... The act of coitus. Yes, exactly. Okay. And it finishes with the climax. With the crescendo. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. I have no quotes, unusually for me, from any of the band members or the production team to corroborate my theory. It is purely my theory, but given the opening line... That is what I got from that. I mean, certainly it's not an outlandish theory. I'll say that. No, exactly. But I really like it. Yeah, it's... So we've talked about some some different influences there. One quite comedically. But it still doesn't stray far from the tones, the themes, from anything you've heard before or anything you'll, you'll hear since. There's, this is one of the things that I think is really clever about the way this album is constructed in the main, is that there are a lot of different sounding songs on here, but they all sound consistent. Yeah, that's a, that's a, so I had I had sort of noted that, but I couldn't I didn't really know how to describe it. So I've got a note here that I, I enjoy the sonic variety through the album, but it's all of a of a piece. I can't remember what was the album that we had that had the Indian song on it. That was Elastica. Yeah, we sounded like as though we'd been dropped in from another yeah. another album. There's different things happening on here, but it all sounds part of the piece, really. Yeah, exactly that. Five tracks in, so we're nearly halfway. All killer so far. Lovely time. Mm, very lovely time. Okay, we then move on to Hands Away. Not about the final scene in Die Hard. <laughs> Sorry. No, look, I, I am usually the one to make a, a ridiculous uh, comment. So, you know, it's probably good for the listeners for, for it to come from you for once. <laughs> so it's got a really simple atmospheric opening that it highlights the vocals so well and gives it a kind of, again, a, a cinematic sound, a, a grand vista, if you like. And then the guitars are great. The keyboards are really important in this. It's got a really insistent drum beats going throughout it. It's like a slow build of the tension throughout. Yeah. Uh, okay. So um, rewind, playback. <laughs> so I love the way it starts gently with that little guitar riff. Mm-hmm. It gradually builds, as you said, there's a really delicate synth part, which is almost choral. Yeah. There's a subtlety and a depth to that, which I really like. I can see a direct line from the way this song sounds, tracing forward to some of public service broadcasting, certainly their earlier stuff. It's really intimate, this song. I really like that intimacy, that closeness, but still that 
grand soundscape. That doesn't really make sense. It's a bit of an oxymoron, but I know what I mean. In terms of what it's about, so uh, as quoted on Genius.com, Paul Banks said, uh, it's so absurdist, it's an almost dreamy snapshot of a scenario that involves homosexuality, like bondage and some weird sexual partnership, which at the time I felt was very radical as a lyrical context for a rock song. I mean, he's clearly never heard Relax if he thought that was radical. If, if that's the case, he's not heard a lot of 70s output. that wasn't really hiding much on this that's fair i'm a big big fan of this it starts out as something and then then just builds gradually into something much bigger and Mm -hmm. uh yeah it's great it is it it, it's it's really good i haven't got anything more to say about it okay then let's move on so then we go on to obstacle two obstacle two clearances one (laughs) (laughs) so on this this is where I noted down, you can see the clear influence this had on editors. That Oh, yeah. Tom Smith uh, from editors, his vocal performances were definitely influenced by Paul Banks here. Yep. I love how he performs this song. I think, it, I think it's a phenomenal vocal performance. Yeah, I agree. There's a torment yeah. in the way he sings it. It's tortured. Yeah, yeah. I think... Come on to the lyrics in a moment. Sonically, I think the opening of this follows on really, really well from the ending of Hands Away. They could almost be the same track. I have some issues with track ordering later on, but not here. I think that is a really clever placement, actually. You've got, in the second verse, I think it is, you've almost got two dueling vocal tracks singing over each other that I really, really like. And again, you've got that huge reverb again. Like, like I said, they're playing in Carnegie Hall, but it's empty and it's just huge. It's um, really strong. Really like it. Yeah, it's it's great. And there's there's so much there's so much that's interesting that's going on throughout this song. Mm. It's an album that constantly surprises you and constantly gives you something else to think about. It does indeed. You talked earlier about the the sort of vocal depth in, in Paul Banks's lyrics. And I think that's very, really prevalent here. Oh, yeah. It's about being willing to change and become a better person for someone you love and someone you want to be with. I feel like love is in the kitchen with a culinary eye. I think he's making something special and I'm smart enough to try. If you can fix me up, girl, you'll go a long way. It's not literal by any stretch of the imagination, but it's like... He's saying there's a chance for something really special here, but I need your help. Uh, really clever, really, really clever lyrics. Yeah, it's so well put together. Like everything that's going on, it's great. Like I haven't really got anything more that I can say about it. Nope, nor I. Okay, so then we move on to Stella was a diver and she's always down. It's an odd old fucking song, this. It is, but I like it. I don't know how I feel about it. Okay. So I'll I'll sort of talk you through my my notes as they the the section where it's repeating the word days absolutely loses me. Then the song grabs me back. That's one of my favourite bits of the song. <laughs> so it grabs me back when it changes, and then the Stella section loses me, and then I'm pulled back in. And yeah, it, I've no idea what I think about it because there's bits of it that I'm, that lose me, and then there's bits of it that I think are absolutely phenomenal, and I I've no idea. Okay, so in terms of the performances of the band, I think this is Sam Fogarino's standout song. 
the reason I say that is you've just talked about parts of the song that lose you and grab you and mm-hmm. because the song is in so many different movements, there's so many different pieces of the puzzle that come together. And through those, the beat and the rhythm is constantly changing and the way that San Fogarino is dexterous in his in his drumming to cope with that but still make it flow naturally. I'm in awe of it. I have to say, I'm in absolute awe of it. It's incredible drumming. So this is his standout song on the album. Again, I can hear elements of where Kings of Leon drew their inspiration from in some of the breakdowns with the bass and the drums. I like this. I know what you mean. It is quite self-indulgent in a way. Quite artsy. But I, I like it. It's got enough to keep me interested all the way through. And yeah, I like it. Yeah, it's it's a funny song. And so I, I really have no idea what I think about it. Okay. Whilst you ruminate on that, a couple of, uh, well, something I just want to, I want to talk about. Firstly, the, the sort of spoken word introduction at the start is Paul Banks dicking around with a mouthful of ice. Fine. <laughs> it has been suggested that the song draws inspiration from the Illuminatus trilogy of novels by Robert Shea and Robert Wilson, because in that trilogy, there is a character called Stella, and she has sex on a submarine. That submarine, pay attention to this for later, is called the Leaf Erickson. Ah, right, okay. Um, I can see where you're coming from, but I don't agree. Fair, fair enough. As, as I say, it's just something that... Um... Didn't necessarily work for me. Okay, fair enough then. I will will not make you talk about it any longer. Shall we go on to the next song? Yeah, let's go on to the next one. So, we move on to Roland. So, it's not an ode to the uh, Grange Hill character. (laughs) Or the keyboard maker. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, to be fair, they deserve a song or two about them. Yeah, I mean, Roland's keyboards were an absolute staple of the 80s. <laughs> oh, good stuff. So yeah, um I think I think this is a, this is a cracking a cracking song. It's got great tempo to it. It's the urgency to it. The guitar work is great. And this is the most kind of sort of up tempo thing we've had thus far. I've I've put a note here. I would fucking love to see this live. I can imagine being in a sweaty mosh pit. Yeah, absolutely having it going off. Definitely, the song itself apparently is inspired by the story of Polish serial killer Karol Kot, the vampire of Krakow, who used sixteen knives to stab people around the city of Krakow, killing two of them. My best friend's a butcher. He has sixteen knives. He carries them all over town. At least he tries. Oh, look, it stopped snowing. My best friend's from Poland, and oh, he has a beard. Fair enough. (laughs) But they caught him with his case in a public space. That is what we had feared. Incidentally, Carol Cott didn't have a beard, so, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So that's apparently what what inspires the song. It's got that sort of frenetic sound to it. Again, I can hear the editor's link in Paul Banks' vocal performance, but also the tone of the guitar but i can also hear franz ferdinand and the killers killers especially you've a lot of the songs on hot fuzz are quite gruesome in in their lyrical content certainly the early ones jenny you know jenny was a friend of mine Mm -hmm. it's about obsession and and killing someone that you can't be with yeah I, i can hear the sound of the killers in this i think 
the way Paul Banks sings it, he sounds he sounds unhinged at times. He <laughs> does, and it, that adds to the frenzy of the song, really. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it'd be fantastic to see this live absolutely going off. Again, it's a sort of small, sweaty venue. Speakers absolutely booming out. You've had six warm cans of Red Stripe in a shitty plastic glass, and off you go. Again, there's some really effective, simple but effective guitar work mm-hmm. through this, which sets the song off really nicely. I do like Roland. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a great song. So we then move on to The New. So it's, a diff- again, different kind of sound. It's got a gentle opening, but it sounds it sounds much moodier than anything else that's been before. And there's there's some proper moody songs on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are definitely. But I know what you mean. And you know, like again, like we've touched on it, the production on this album, but this song, like the the way they balance the different instruments and the the vo- like, it's a subtle vocal, subtler vocal performance here. So it allows those other elements to come to the fore to to really highlight themselves. And yeah, and like again, it's another song with different movements that it turns into something else. And the bass is fucking great. And they they know how to end a song. They do. Okay, okay. So let's dial back a little bit. You talked about the production being one of the things you liked about this. On that, Peter Cattis himself said, I did not care for the new initially, but it grew on me, and I'm not a sentimental guy, but that song actually moved me to tears. When I was listening to one of the final mixes, I was moved. I love the way it starts, quite mournful, but then about halfway through, two, three minutes in, it completely shifts tone into something really menacing, something really dark and foreboding. It's it's in several movements again, like, like Stella was. It's long, six minutes, but for me, it's not too long. I know we have a generally different view on, on track length. This one, it's got more than enough to keep me engaged all the way through. And as you said, they end it really, really well. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've we've talked many times of our differing perception on the optimum length of songs, but there's there's enough different things going on throughout it that you don't really care on the length that you mm-hmm. I could probably do with a little longer on the ending because I really enjoy it. Well, yeah, yeah, because it's very good. That's why. Yeah, big fan of the new. Yeah, and so we reach the end of the album, and mm. we um, we finish up with Leif Eriksson. Um and obviously you've made reference to to the name earlier on. Yes, so this uh, we've made this a joke a few times before, but this genuinely isn't about the Icelandic explorer Leif Eriksson, <laughs> who was the first person to explore the Americas. Yes, before Christopher Columbus. Do your research. It's all on Google. But yeah, about the name of the submarine in the Illuminatus trilogy. It's another one about sexual tension. She says it helps with the lights out. Her rabid glow is like braille to the night. She swears I'm a slave to the detail. But if your life is such a big joke, why should I care? I mean, yeah, that we've we've talked throughout this album about Paul Banks' fantastic lyrical content, and again, it's so dense and so 
Mm-hmm. There's so much different meaning within it. The, the song itself has, again, a really great all-round performance from the band. It's not bombastic. It keeps with the rest of the album, but it's doing something, again, that's slightly different. And it all comes together. It all works so well. I agree, but... And it's a fairly large but. So it's a big but that you cannot lie about. <laughs> I was going to edit that out, but I can't now. <laughs> um, I like this song, and I agree with what you said. I'm not so sure it would be my choice to close the album. Mm. I think if you swap this around with the new, or even switched it around with NYC, end on a more hopeful air, for example, then I'd feel better. It, it's a really, really odd choice as the closing track for the album. I get your point because it's not an uplifting song. It isn't something that leads you away from the album feeling invigorated, lifted, whatever whatever epithet you want to use. Yeah, I, I get that point. I don't think it's a bad choice, but I, th- I, I know what you're saying, that it leaves you with a moodiness. See, I do think it's a bad choice. I do feel more strongly about this than you. It's a bad choice because the song doesn't stand apart from anything else on the album. And there are other tracks that would more obviously lend themselves to being the closing track that do stand apart from other things on the album. It's not epic sounding. It's not tonally different. It's not a a crescendo. It's it's a good song. Don't get me wrong. It is a good song. Mm-hmm. But it isn't a closing track to an album. It would be like ending Morning Glory with Cast No Shadow. Mm-hmm. Just wouldn't make any sense. Okay. No, I, I, I completely understand that point. There's a fair argument to be made there. I feel I've spoken so glowingly about everything so far. I almost feel bad ending on a negative note, but it always has left that slightly, not not bitter taste in my mouth, but that slight feeling of, oh, so close. You know what I mean? Well, at least at least it's not what we had in our previous class where one of the albums left you viscerally angry. Well, that's true. Yeah. We are nowhere near Starship levels, guys. <laughs> Nothing so, like that. You know, we've, we've taken a step forward, at least. <laughs> we've made progress. This is good talking. Good yeah. talking. And to be clear, I'm not advocating for this song being removed from the album. It deserves its place on the album because it is equally as strong as many of the tracks on there. But it's not a standout. And if it was swapped in order with even just the previous track, I think I'd be a lot happier about about it. I think it's a legitimate point. I don't necessarily feel it as strongly as you, but... There's a, as I say, there's a point there. So this is good. This, you know, both this week and last week, we've actually had some some genuine debate, some genuine I know. clash. It's very unusual. We, for we, us. we need to get away from this because, like, the, I know the the IP is that we we actually clash, but the reality but of it don't. is is that it's very much album loving. We should, yeah, we should just call this album comparison. <laughs> <laughs> Two albums enter the ring of discussion. (laughs) And one leaves... Slightly chastened. Hours later. (laughs) Yep, many hours later. Okay. Should we um, move on to reviews and, and I suppose the legacy of the album? 
Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so considering the sales that we talked about when we did the Top Trumps were not great, the critical reception was largely positive across the board. Yeah. So Michael, um, and I do apologize to him whether if I mispronounce his uh, surname, Chami Chamey of the Austin Chronicle. So it described the album as having melodic Peter Hook bass lines, the divine shoegaze mm. textures of My Bloody Valentine, and a singer who's a dead ringer for Ian Curtis. Uh, Rob Sheffield in the Rolling Stone said their sleek, melancholy sound is a thing of glacial beauty. Yeah, I've got a lot more from that Rob Sheffield review, if you don't mind. And and, and I've got some words to say about it, actually. Yeah, sure. He also said, like many of other New York indie bands, these well-dressed young men are bewitched by classic British art fucks such as Echo and the Bunnymen and Joy Division. Art fucks? As well as Ride and the Smiths. Interpol's sleek, melancholy sound is a thing of glacial beauty, as you just said. In their greatest song, Obstacle One, these guys can't even decide which Joy Division song they're trying to bite, beginning with She's Lost Control and segueing into Dissolver, but accidentally coming up with a brilliant new tune of their own. With gems such as PDA, Roland, and the fabulously titled Stella was a diver and she was always down, Interpol make head music as impeccably tailored as their Dolce and Gabbana suits. I think that is unnecessarily sarcastic. So in one hand you dismiss the Joy Division comparison out of hand, but in the very next sentence uh, you double down on it. I think you've sort of contradicted yourself there, Rob, to be honest with you. Yeah, and the you know the scoring that it eventually received is kind of redolent of the equivocy that they eventually came down on, that they sort of liked it but sort of don't. Yeah. Eddie Carr in Pitchfork um, described it as one of the most strikingly passionate records I've heard this year. So, as I say, largely the reviews were positive. <laughs> you know, there were some voices against it. And there is one notable uh, voice of dissent. Who could that be? <laughs> uh, I'm sensing you would like me to tell us what Nobby McGee thought of the album, Kev. I think we should. <laughs> Right, okay, what did Robert Criscow think? So again, he was, as I said last week, he was at large at this time in the Village Voice wreaking his havoc. So he named the album his Dud of the Month, and he wrote, They bitch because everyone compares them to Joy Division, and they're right. It's way too kind. I say that as someone who thanks Ian Curtis for making New Order possible. I mean, let's stop for a second. Fucking wow. What, you just literally made a joke and a fucking wisecrack about suicide. You fucking prick. Yeah, absolute fucking balance. And even in 2002, that's fucking way out of line. Sorry, mm-hmm. dickhead. <clears throat> Regaining my composure. Joy Division struggled against depression rather than flaunting it, much less wearing it like a designer suit. What's truly depressing is that these fops tweak the nostalgia of young adults who cherish indistinct memories of much worse bands than Joy Division, every one of them English. Bauhaus, Ultravox, Visage, Spandau Ballet, Tears for Fears. At a critical moment in consciousness, they exemplify and counsel disengagement, self-seeking, a luxurious cynicism. Fuck you! Okay, so let's let's just even talk about the list of bands that he is he's linked them with. Visage, 
Maybe. In what way do Interpol sound anything like Visage or fucking Spandau Ballet? No, so I'm gonna, I was going to get onto the Spandau Ballet and Tears for Fears stuff. I, like, Visage is that sort of slightly Bowie Berlin-influenced kind of thing. Like, <laughs> it, it's at a stretch. And same with the Bauhaus stuff. Like, it's a fucking stretch, but okay. I can, I can see the Bauhaus one, at least. I can I can stretch to, to Visage. Fucking Spandau Ballet. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, this does not sound like true. I rec- I honestly reckon he's just got out his My First Compendium of British 80s Bands book. Yeah. I, I mean, like, why don't you throw Sig Zig's book in there, Kim? <laughs> you know, the Thompson <laughs> Twins. You know, Sonia. Go on. Lash in because... Exactly. Do- Mel and Kim. <laughs> just because they happen to sound like some British bands of the early 80s does not mean that they are absolutely welded to anything that came from this country during the period. What are you going to say? There's uh, hints of Jonah fucking Louie in there. <laughs> Stop the cavalry, Kev. <laughs> if I'm in the kitchen of parties. <laughs> I Sorry, I, I can't get past the fucking I thank Ian Curtis for making yeah. new order box. Fucking hell, lad. What the hell is wrong with you? So whatever whatever criticism that he has to make of the album, and I mean his 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 critiques are very rarely useful or, in fact, coherent. Coherent. They are largely oblique. He's lost all right to even fucking continue the review after the Ian Curtis line, as far as I'm concerned. Agreed. Uh, but it's not the first time he's uh, disgraced himself in our eyes. And for, for, you know, let's not even go to non-skate. Well, and the fucking monkey spawn thing with Public Enemy. Oh, Jesus, yeah. I forgot all about that. <laughs> all right, shall we talk about some legacy? Yeah, let's let's move on. So the album is hailed subsequently mm. as a seminal album of the 2000s and was hugely influential to a number of bands and helped usher in the early 2000s New York post-punk revival scene which again had a huge, and as we talked about last week, had a huge influence on the UK. And we can talk about loads of bands that certainly had an influence from Interpol. As for Interpol themselves, the album didn't do awful, but... As you said, it was a slow burner. Yeah. They then subsequently release um, Antics, which we talked about earlier, and again had some had some success so you know it, it got its their first uh, sort of uk top 40 hits released from antics and it uh, reached gold status in the uk and again in the us yeah so it reached number 21 in the uk number 15 in the us number 10 in ireland it sold a similar amount to turn on the bright lights but it sold much more quickly and I mentioned this, that I was going to come on to this last week. On their subsequent world tour, it included a stint supporting U2. And these are very much a band who, I think at least, were affected by their stint supporting mm-hmm. U2. Which is surprising, because their sound was already quite big. Yeah, you didn't need to go bigger. No, sorry, I interrupted you. Please carry on. Yeah, so Antics does relatively well. They get a, a deal with a major, so they move to Capitol Records um, and release Our Love to Admire. But it doesn't doesn't really do, do a huge amount. Well, sorry. Go on. Sales-wise, no. But perversely, it is their highest charting record. Number four in the US, number two in the UK, and number one in Ireland. Which, 
So the album was leaked online shortly before its release on, mm-hmm. on peer-to-peer networks. And it, so this was 2007. It just goes to show the impact on the industry that illegal downloads were having. And it's a really odd quirk that it sold much less than their first two albums, but charted much higher. Yeah, so, I mean, they've continued to perform, like, continue to release albums. So the fourth album that was released in 2010, which was called Interpol, there's El Pintor, the, they have a brief hiatus after Carlos Dengler leaves. Yeah, apparently the sessions around the recording of Interpol were quite fraught. You've talked about the tension that was present on this album. Things things very much spilled over on the recording of Interpol. So again, Paul Banks in an interview with Vice in 2018, he said, we were a pretty dysfunctional band making that record. I think on the one hand, part of the reason we were a great band with Carlos was because tensions and disagreements can really lead to magic with collaboration. But there's also a lot of unnecessary suffering that goes on when people really aren't happy with the setup. And I think we suffered for this record a lot. So yeah, as you said, Carlos then left. Paul Banks himself took on the role of bassist rather than recruiting a, a replacement for Carlos Dengler. So yeah, and they've they, you know they've subsequently released various albums after that. So there's Marauder and A Fine Mess that have that have come out. Uh, apparently, they are working on new material currently. So I'm not a fan of Marauder. It doesn't know what it wants to be for me. I think that's the that's the problem is that they've tried to move away from the template mm-hmm. but the more they move away from it the less coherent the album sounds. Yeah, very good way of putting it. Similar to what we said with the Strokes, by now they're a, they're clearly an established act. To me, I like Antics. It's a really good album. It's not this. Mm-hmm. They've never recaptured this high point and as you said, they seem to drift between what they want to be and anyway. So, um, I mean, you know, there's so many bands that that's true for that yeah. they struggle to recapture the glory of their debut. Lightning in a bottle is a phrase that we've used quite a few times. Mm-hmm. But as we've said, the influence that this album had was huge. It's not about what happened to the band so much as what, what followed it from others. So I'm going to Brandon Flowers again. We, we mentioned him last week. We quoted him last week. I'm, I'm going to quote him again now. In an interview with the NME in 2016, he said, you had the Strokes and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, but there was another band who were darker and more mysterious. Interpol's first album was on constant rotation while we were making Hot Fuss. You can definitely hear that on some of the tracks. I mean, we've we've thought before when discussing that album that it is essentially a stalker's manifesto. It is It is a dark old album. It is a dark old album, but then they throw in it's indie rock and roll for me. And what the... Anyway, yeah. sorry. <laughs> okay, I've mentioned editors a few times. I'm going to mention them one more time here, and I'm actually going to read a quote from uh, Sam Fogarino regarding those comparisons with editors. So, again, the enemy. This is from 2007. Why I feel sorry for editors is that we put out our first album and we're fucking Joy Division reincarnated. Then editors appear and they're the British Interpol. Just leave us alone and leave them alone. If we have influenced them, I think it's flattering. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. I can see your point. But it's one thing sounding like a band who released two albums over 20 years before you released your debut. It's another thing entirely doing it with one of your contemporaries. 
And as I said earlier, I'm speaking as someone who is a big fan of Editor's first two albums in particular. So I'm not criticising Editor's. I do like them. But the similarities are too obvious to ignore, I'm afraid. Yeah, they are. There's being influence, and then there's I'm not I'm not suggesting play, plagiarism, but certainly strongly being influenced by someone else's template. I'll put it that way. Yeah, uh, that's yeah, absolutely. And I know you like editors as well, so you know. Yeah. Okay, so the last just before I sign off, those are a few bands, but there's others. Block Party, I think, owe a lot to this. I really do. The Bravery, the Cortinas, the XX, God Almighty, the mm-hmm. XX wouldn't have anything if it wasn't for this album, if you ask me. And I love the XX. So, as we said by the Strokes last week, and we're talking about this through a lens of being in the UK in the 2000s. A lot of the legacy that we see from this album, as with Is This It, is in the explosion of British guitar music through that decade. Yeah, without, without question. Okay, so just before we um, move on to the matter at hand in terms of deciding first our best song and worst song and then deciding on The Clash itself, I have one more quote. Uh, So it's Matt LeMay in Pitchfork, and I think this sums things up really nicely. So suggesting that this album is simply a product of its time and place is no less naive than suggesting anyone who has ever been in love could easily write, arrange and record an amazing love song. There were a lot of good bands in New York in 2002, but only one made this record. Beautifully put, and I agree entirely. Mm -hmm. And I have nothing to add. I think that's a great way to sign off. Okay, so let's uh, move on to your best and worst song. Okay, I'm going to do my best first. So as I said, I've loved Untitled since I first heard it. I think Obstacle 1 and PDA are both phenomenal songs. But I can't look past NYC. As I said when we went through it, as we both said when we went through it, it's a beautiful piece of music. And the added poignancy that the context in which it came out gives the song. Well, it does always make me feel slightly emotional. As I said, it makes me open my heart to the city of New York. So yeah, NYC is my best song on the album. I, I adore it. My worst song. This is a really tough choice. Well, no, it isn't. It's an obvious choice for me, but it's tough to call it my worst song because I don't actually think I've been very critical about any of the songs on the album. But it's Leif Erikson purely because it's in the wrong place. I like it. Just swap it around with the one that precedes it. So I've got to choose that as my worst track, I'm afraid. Okay, fair enough. How about you? Um, So for me, I'll start with my worst song. So I don't think it's going to come as a huge surprise. And it's it's because I just don't know what I think about it. So Stella was a diver and she was always down. Like it has some really good bits to it and it also has some bits that completely lose me. And I don't I I still cannot decide whether I actually like the song or not. Okay, fair enough. But I've I mean I'm not re I I don't think I really need to add anything more to what you said in terms of the best song because it is NYC. It's utterly beautiful. It's a love letter to a city. It, and it doesn't hide away from the dirt under the fingernails as well. It, it's warts and all, you know. And that, that's sort of true love for the city, that you like the dirty bits of it, the things that are a bit wrong about it, because you love the, you love the city, everything about it. And that comes through that song in such a beautiful, melodic and reflective way. 
Yeah, really well put. Okay, I guess it's time to get down to brass tacks and score these two albums. I think it is. So I chose this clash, so that means I go first on The Strokes and I go second on Interpol, yeah? Okay. So is this it? I really, really enjoyed revisiting this album. To be fair, it's a long time since I'd listened to it. Many years since I'd listened to this album. And I'd almost forgotten how much I like it. And not even considering how accomplished it is as not just a rock record, but a pop record as well, actually. Uh-huh. There's some great pop songs on there. You know, we we talked about the singles last week, but there's so much more in there than those three songs. You've got the modern age. You've got the title track. You've got New York City Cops. I love it. You don't. Fair enough. It did set the template for the next decade, well, of guitar music at least. For better and for worse, I do admit that. For every Arctic Monkeys, there's a Fratelli's. So, you know, it's a classic. Becoming reacquainted with it was like meeting up again with a former best friend who you've lost touch with and you've not seen for 20 years and you fall straight back into that groove. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Like you've never been apart. That's what listening to this album was. So... With all that considered, I'm going to go eight and a half on Is This It. I really, really like it. Okay. So it's a wonderful piece of work. And as you said, I think you, you've put it in a beautiful way that it is like meeting up with an old friend because it, it's an album that I hadn't listened to for a while. I, I will hold my hand up as well. And yeah, that that rush of excitement um, when the modern age kicks in and everything about it and just the ride that you go on and it's full octane and it's and like since since my first initial listen i've had various elements of the songs uh, stuck in my head all week and that can be no bad thing that shows you that it's it's certainly done its trick mm-hmm. yeah it's a brilliant piece of work and unfortunately for them they were never going to recapture that because it's an almost flawless album it's not flawless I've got my my difficulties with song. You you disagree about that one, but there are elements about the album that you don't think are, are perfect either. So it's a nine. It's a nine out of ten. Okay. So what does that give it? That seventeen and a half. Seventeen and a half. Seventeen and a half. It's a good score. I thought about a nine, and I could have given it a nine very easily, but I didn't. Eight and a half is what I gave it. Okay. So seventeen and a half is what. Turn on the Bright Lights has to beat. You go first. So, a very different album. It has a huge sound to it. It does so many interesting things musically. Paul Banks' lyrics, his voice are absolutely wondrous. And there's so much going on throughout all the songs. It's not an album you get bored of. It's one that you can come back to many times and find new things going on in in a bass line or, or a drum fill or, or, you know, all kinds of things are going on that are interesting. It's a fantastic piece of work. And it's another album that, again, I'm glad that we've done on The Clash because it will remind me to go back and listen to it more often. I can't split the two of them. It's not perfect, but it's not far off. So it is a 9 out of 10 as well for me. Oh, God. Okay, you have given me quite the challenge here, Kev. I agree with much of what you've said. (laughs) 
So I'm going to try not to repeat and reiterate it. It's breathtaking. Even 20 years or, you know, nearly 20 years after its release, it's breathtaking, this album. Much like Is This It, its influence adds to its appeal. I really like dark, sinister, brooding music. And so this being all of those things, yeah, this is this is all up in my business, so to speak. <laughs> Every song is remarkable for its simplicity, but the way those simplistic elements meld together to create just lush, atmospheric soundscapes. This is a really tough choice for me. I am going to split the two of them. I am going to give this a 9 out of 10 as well. Wow. I love both of these albums, and it's a personal choice. If you said, hand on heart, why do you think Turn on the Bright Lights is better than Is This It? I can't give you a scientific reason. I just prefer it a tiny bit. Okay. And that's all I can say, I'm afraid. So this gets 18. So by half a point, Interpol have won. Uh, fair enough. A, a worthy, worthy victor. It is a worthy victor. And I feel bad for the strokes. And to be honest, when I decided on The Clash, I thought it would go the other way. Mm-hmm. So did I. But no. I, as I said, I can't give you any reason other than it's a personal choice. But it's damn close. If I if I could have been so pedantic as to say, well, I'm going to give the strokes eight and three quarters. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's that close. It's a fucking Rizzler paper between the two of them. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to have to come down on Interpol because it makes me feel all the feels. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Our victor this week, the, the winner in the ring of death, is Interpol's turn on the bright lights. It is indeed. Well done to Interpol. You may have been absolutely creamed last week in top trumps, but you have won the one true accolade and you should feel very proud of yourselves for doing so. Maybe you should add that to the wiki. (laughs) (laughs) Done. And you know what? I'm going to start doing this on every album. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Sound. (laughs) Uh, Okay, Kev, what are we doing next? It's your choice. So we are going to move away from our city season. We will we will return at some point, and I did have a cracking one in my uh, back pocket, but we are entering the festive season, and it only seems right for us to do a Christmas clash. Yeah! So we are going to do the daddies of them all. Oh, go on. So we pit a Christmas gift for you from Phil Spector. <laughs> Versus a Motown Christmas. Oh, wow. Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as I said, it's Christmas, so we have to do something. And uh, so I will be taking us through Phil Spector, correct? Yeah, that's right. And I will be doing the later uh, Motown Christmas compilation album. Great stuff. I mean... Uh, I think this is one where background and stuff probably won't take so long. We'll just be getting into it. Yeah, I mean, particularly for the Motown one, because there's a lot of songs on that. Yeah, there are. Uh, Good. So uh, if you're not into Christmas, then then sauce, but we are. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Also, I think it's worth saying, and we don't yet know exactly when we're going to do it, uh, so when it'll come out, but... We are planning to do another bonus episode around Christmas of our favourite Christmas songs. And we're hoping to have a couple of guests on that episode as well. Yeah, so it it should be it should be good. We we will certainly consider some of the some obvious ones and hopefully some more um 
more obscure ones. Indeed, we will. So yeah, we'll we'll hopefully give you more details on on next week's show about that. But yeah, before then, Kev, how can people keep in touch with the show? So if you want to see um, one of your potential musical heroes look like Charlie Manson messing about with nunchucks in a sped up way. Um, <laughs> For, some, for no fucking reason, then you might go to, yet again, Ian Brown's Twitter. Please don't go there. It's full of fucking nut stuff. Don't go there, guys. Don't. But if you are on Twitter, you may also check us out at Clash Album. If you like quality, carefully curated content, which is not that easy to say, then you can go to our Insta um, and check that out. Or if you are resolutely old school as ever, you can send us an email to albumclash at gmail.com. Boom. Very enjoyable, that. Yeah, we will definitely return to musical cities in time. Although perhaps not immediately after Christmas, because I've got something else in mind. Yeah, I think we may have may have another season in in, in our back pockets. But yeah, I've really enjoyed Musical Cities, so we're definitely going to do this again uh, at some point. Guys, thank you for listening as always. Really appreciate it. Get in touch. Leave a rating. Leave a review. Subscribe. Tell your mates. Tell us what you want us to cover. Tell us what your favourite Christmas songs are. Tell us what your favourite Christmas albums are. Tell us to fuck off because you're sick of being Christmas being rammed down your throats. All that stuff. <laughs> so as we as we end our city season, we're in New York. It's Christmas. We're going to go to the um, Rockefeller Center. Rockefeller Center. Skate around and then. Uh, we're going to ask Donald Trump for directions to the Rockefeller Center. No, I'm going to kick him in the balls. <laughs> Good An stuff. Opportunity missed by Macaulay Culkin. Definitely. <laughs> right. I think it's time to go. It's late. So, a reminder, next week's show, I'll be taking us through A Christmas Gift to You from Phil Spector. In two weeks' time, Kev, you'll be going through... A Motown Christmas. And uh, we'll have a lovely old time. Uh, Until then, party on, Wayne. Party on, Garth. I've been Tim. Take care now, Tim. I've been Kev. Have a good one. Till then.